I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast from Faster Skier. In this episode, we have Chris Freeman. For those unfamiliar with Chris, he skied in four Olympics from 2002 to 2014, placed fourth on two occasions at the World Championships in the 15K Classic, and stayed at the sharp end of American distance skiing until retirement in 2018. In this conversation, we discuss his experience with continuous glucose monitoring and his thoughts on the integration of this technology into the athletic space by the company Super Sapiens. We also reference a recent article on Faster Skier on Gus Schumacher and his experience as a member of the Super Sapiens pilot group of athletes. You can find links to this article and more on our show notes or at fasterskier.com. Here's Chris. Well, thank you for your time in coming on here. And um, before we get into talking about some of the glucose kind of stuff and your own experience with glucose monitoring and um, some of this new technology, um, I just wanted to kind of check in and see how things are going for you in terms of, um, you know, a couple years ago, I think uh, Jason covered your lead up to your first Ironman in Lake Placid. Um, You did your, I think your second Ironman Lake, Lake Placid this summer. So yeah, if, if you want to talk about how things are going for you, whether that's training, racing, otherwise. Um. Um, yeah, I did do my second Ironman this summer, and I did Ironman Lake Placid again. Um, it's the closest Ironman to me, so um, I don't have to fly, so I like, I like that about it. Um, also, it's a really hilly, hard course, which, which makes it slow, but I'm also... Um, more used to lots of hills than a lot of the competitors in in triathlon and so yeah it went really well i won my age group and um, i earned a trip to go compete in kona um it was supposed to be october 9th but now due to covid19 um it has been postponed to february 5th so i'm kind of crossing my fingers that it will actually happen okay and what will that look like training for an iron man through the winter um, a lot of time on an indoor bike trainer um, and, and cool training, running outside. Yeah. Um, I've, I've actually kind of come to like training on a bike inside, which sounds really weird. But um, if you get into the interactive stuff, um, it's it's not nearly as mind-numbing as you think it will be. Yeah. Had you planned on doing any ski racing or just taking the triathlon? Um, I was thinking of, you know, jumping into the super tours that were going to come east, but with the uh, Ironman in February, probably not now. Um, last year, I would have done a couple ski races, but as you know, the the opportunities were very uh, hit or miss, and I just I just never never did it. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about continuous glucose monitoring. Um, I listened to a, a podcast uh, through Training Peaks with Phil Sutherland, who's um, one of the guys that started Super Sapiens, which is sort of this um, bringing continuous glucose monitoring to athletes. Um, and he talked about he's also a type 1 diabetic um, and is a part of the uh, Novo Nordisk, team Novo Nordisk, excuse me, um, cycling team. And, um, um, I actually know Phil, so yep. okay. Um, and yeah, so he talked about when um, 
his first experience essentially with continuous glucose monitoring and when that technology came about and um, it was his team Novo Nordisk was doing this ride across uh, the country or race across the country um, and, and using this new technology and just how kind of like transformative that was for him. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that for yourself in terms of did you have a similar experience when all of a sudden, you know, you were able to use a continuous monitor um, versus what you had been doing and, and what did that shift look like for you? Well, in 2010, uh, at the Vancouver Olympics, I had uh, a terrible Olympics, and it was primarily due to glucose issues, especially in my first race, the pursuit, or actually the second race. On uh, the pursuit race, um, I had a very public collapse from uh, hypoglycemia. And um, so after the Olympics, I was really desperate to find some new way of monitoring my sugar to keep tighter controls and um the continuous glucose monitors were really just starting to become viable um and i started using dexcom and i have been using dexcom now the dexcom continuous glucose monitor for 11 years and i do have to say that I am sponsored by them, and they are a competitor of Libre. So, and what did that did that allow you after that Olympics? Um, did that give you better control, or what did that um, what did that change? Well, up way? until that up until that point, the only way to monitor your blood sugar was to do actual blood tests from your fingers, um, and I was you know testing my blood sugar twenty times a day, and for one thing, that scars up your fingers, but and it only gives you a snapshot of what's going on. You don't know if you're trending up, if you're trending downwards, and especially leading into a race, it's having a blood sugar of 85 um, that's rising is a completely different thing than a blood sugar of 85 and dropping quickly. And the glucose, the continuous glucose monitor will tell you what those trends are. Um, the Dexcom actually gives me a reading every five minutes and I can look at a chart on my phone to see how it's, how it's rising, how it's falling, if it's staying constant, um, and actually can actually set alarms on it. So if it's rising very quickly, it'll alert me. If it's dropping really quickly, it'll alert me, uh, just as it will alert me if, um, I am out of, a, out of the prescribed range that I want to be in. Now, when I first started using it, the accuracy was definitely an issue. Um, and, you know, the, the companies were very upfront with the, the fact that, you know, you shouldn't be administering insulin with it because it, of the accuracy issues. Uh, but I've been using it now through four or five different generations, and the current um, one that I'm using, the Dexcom G6, is FDA approved for insulin dosage, which means that there is a high level of confidence in the accuracy of modern day continuous glucose monitors. And taking a step back, can you give a, a basic rundown for people who may not be informed just in terms of um, what the processes are with blood glucose and insulin in the body for someone um, without diabetes compared to type one versus type two, just to give that clarification. 
So a person with type 2 diabetes um, still, especially right after diagnosis, is still producing insulin in their body. They're just not utilizing that insulin properly. Um, if you think of it in terms of like a lock and key, um, the sugars get broken down in your body after you eat them. And then insulin gets sent out to get those sugars back into your body. But if you have type 2 diabetes, um, that insulin, the keyhole changes and they just bounce off of each other. Um, in very simple terms, you know, exercising more um, will change that keyhole to make it um, fit right uh, because exercise makes you more sensitive to insulin. Um, medicine, medications can mimic that and also change the way that fits. And then the, uh, the insulin and the sugar work together the way they're supposed to. In a type 1 diabetic, um, what happens, it's actually an autoimmune disease right. where the body just decides that the islet cells, um, the insulin-making cells on the pancreas are an enemy and the body kills them all off and then you become completely insulin-dependent. Um, and basically without administering artificial insulin to you, you would slowly starve to death and, and die. Um, so type one is a very serious disease. And, um, you know, in the 1930s, 1940s, it was basically a death sentence. So we've come a, we've come a very long way. What do you see is still lacking in terms of um, glucose or insulin technology for individuals with type one diabetes? Well, what the the big innovation right now is called um, it's artificial pancreas or closed loop, where the um, continuous glucose monitor communicates to the insulin pump, okay. and then it takes the person out of the equation. So you don't have to. I mean, when I'm walking around in the day, I am just constantly thinking. Where's my blood sugar? Is it trending high? Is it trending low? How much did I just take? Do I need to eat soon? Um, I mean, the amount of equations I'm doing in my head just trying to get through the day is absurd. Um, I have not found an artificial pancreas system that I'm comfortable using yet. Um, it's, it's They're getting better and better, um, and I will eventually probably start using one, but I have not yet. I mean, the big limitations are, one, that the um, continuous glucose monitors measure glucose in your subcutaneous fat, which is about 15 minutes behind what your actual blood sugar is. Okay. Um, the other factor is that synthetic insulin that you inject in a pump is... Um, light years better than what we had um, 40 years ago, but it still has its limitations. Um, all of the synthetic insulins that we use are engineered to break down differently in subcutaneous fat. Some are uh, use, some of them are engineered to break down very quickly. Some are engineered to break down at the same rate for a 24-hour period. Um, those are called basal insulins. 
And then the fast acting ones are called bolus insulins. And I use in my insulin pump a bolus insulin that is designed to be as fast acting as possible. So I inject, so when it comes in from my pump, it starts working two minutes after it's entered my body. And then it enters, then it goes into what's called its peak phase for the next half an hour. And then for the next half hour after that, it's still pretty active. And then it has a tail phase for two hours where it becomes less and less active in the body. Um, Whereas a person without diabetes eats sugar and the body just naturally sends out the perfect amount of insulin for whatever amount of sugar you just ate, sucks it into the body and gets rid of the insulin. Um, So... That would be ideal, but we're not there. Can you talk a little bit about ranges? Um, A a big thing of this new technology in terms of super sapiens and working with athletes is sort of um, helping people identify and stay within sort of an optimal range. Um, Is that kind of something that you, is that the same as what you are looking at when you're considering your own glucose? and, And what is that kind of optimal versus maybe like a, a normal lab normal range that you're trying to stay within? Well, uh, the optimal range, in my opinion, um, as a person with type 1, is to, like, to, to try to mimic the perfect blood sugar range of a person without type 1 is not really realistic. Um, and it, And you would be constantly going into a low range um, and what I have found and what I actually suffered through in Vancouver was, um, being low a lot, trying to over micromanage my blood sugars. And if you're low as a diabetic overall, um, I mean, when your blood sugar drops below 60, what your body does is it starts spewing out, um, adrenaline right. to release glycogen stores into your body. And if you're doing that on a daily basis, you can actually give yourself adrenal fatigue. And that is what ended up happening to me in Vancouver after I had the collapse um, because I you know, got up with low blood sugar and raced for another 50 minutes um, with my adrenaline just pumping out as much my, all of my glycogen stores and using an artificial amount of uh, adrenaline. Um, so I basically gave myself adrenaline fatigue, um, in a day. Um, but in the months leading up, I was also having frequent lows. Um, and the reason I'm telling that story is because going low frequently, um, is tiring on your body. So I don't, um, try to keep my blood sugar as tight as a person without diabetes would see which would be more basically a person without diabetes would ideally see their blood sugars between 70 and 120 on a daily basis. And an athlete that's really given it probably would go up to 140 or 160 for brief moments during, during anaerobic activity. For myself, I, I'm more liberal and I, and I try to keep myself more between 80 and 200 um, because if I go much below 80, I'm just, I'm flirting with disaster 
And also, you know, all of my monitoring products do have a margin of error. And when you're talking about a blood sugar of 80, if your margin of error is 10%, um, I could be 65 and on that edge of starting to put myself into a low blood sugar range, whereas a person without diabetes wouldn't have to worry about it. Um, you've talked about this on this podcast before um, in an interview with Jason, I think in 2017 or so, um, about how following the same training plan as a non-diabetic athlete didn't necessarily yield the same optimal results for you. Um, and I'm curious if there's similar adjustments in terms of kind of figuring out what works for you that may not be sort of the, the common um common approach when it comes to nutrition, whether that's in, um, in like during training and racing or, um, how you're kind of structuring your nutrition throughout the day, um, just to, to kind of manage your, your blood sugar. Um, so I definitely don't eat the way a nutritionist would tell me to eat as an endurance athlete. If I didn't have diet, um, I, I'm trying to get enough energy into my body to do my training right and to keep my blood sugar in range it um you know blood sugar is too high can you know cause inflammation and as i said blood sugar that's too low taps your adrenal gland so my number one priority is that um trying to fine tune perfect glycogen stores is kind of a secondary concern for me um, so my meals tend to be very high protein, very low glycemic, um, meals, um, so that when I'm working out, I'm actually eating the majority of my carbohydrates while I'm working out, um, in order to basically just maintain a homeostasis in my blood sugar. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes that makes sense. That's <laughs> I mean, what I, explained, I, what, that's what I, I was guessing, I but I wasn't the, sure. <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I was explaining the um, the action of the insulin. You know, it was when I get when I give myself insulin, it's staying in the body for three hours, and that in itself creates a problem. I use the fastest acting insulin on the market, and it still has a three hour action rate. And one of the first things that happens when a non-diabetic goes out and starts working out is the body stops producing insulin. Right. And they actually start putting glucagon into their body. And glucagon signals the body to release sugars to give you energy, to tap your glycogen stores naturally. Um, my glucagon response is actually impaired because I have synthetic insulin going into my body that's, you know, lasting for three hours and it's confusing my body because you don't want to send glucagon out when there's insulin in there so there's an impaired response so it becomes very difficult and complicated yeah uh tying this in with some of the super sapiens technology and kind of promotional messaging um for an athlete without diabetes what are your thoughts on um continuous glucose monitoring and whether or not that's an effective um effective data to collect and, and consider? I think that it could have um, some really, it could yield some really good information. And I, and I read your article with Gus Schumacher and I thought he had a great attitude about how he was using it. 
you know, that it's, it's just another set of data. He's not going to obsess over it. Um, you know, as he looks at it, he's found that if he snacks more and eats smaller meals, he actually feels better in his workouts. And those are all um, great things to see. I think other, I think some of the best things that a person using it would find is actually how they respond to different foods and then probably why they respond to different foods. Because if you don't um, have to know what the nutritional makeup is your foods of your foods are like a diabetic does, most people aren't going to learn. Um, you know, and, and I, and I found this, you know, traveling with the U S ski team, you know, I really had to stay away from refined sugars, um, simple sugars, in between workouts so that I didn't have a spike where I needed a ton of insulin going into a workout and then I dropped low. And a simple example would be if I wanted to eat yogurt, I would eat plain yogurt because there's no added sugar. And then a teammate would buy vanilla yogurt um, and think that there was no difference, but the vanilla yogurt that we're all accustomed to is has massive amounts of added sugars to it and the normal person just thinks that that added sugar is what vanilla tastes like but it really isn't vanilla has a very distinct taste and sugar has a very distinct taste but everyone's just so conditioned to thinking vanilla is sweet because that's how um various food companies market vanilla that they just think oh vanilla extract must just have a sweet flavor when in fact it's all the added sugar that comes with the with the extract yeah. um and there's be then there's countless the countless examples of that you know, of people simply not knowing how many carbohydrates they might be eating in in something i can use my coach uh, zach caldwell as an example you know when i you know he would he offered me some type of juice or some some type of drink i don't know fruitopia or something this was 10 or 20 years ago and i said zach that's loaded with sugar and he had no idea and zach is a very you know he's a precise type of guy um so unless you really need to know what the nutritional makeup of your food is people aren't going to most people don't bother and i think that this will make athletes think more about what they're putting in their bodies and that would be a good thing yeah um, and this has been essentially lifelong for you in terms of, or, or since your diagnosis, which, which I think is around 19, right? Is when you were diagnosed with diabetes? Um, I was diagnosed in 1999. No, no, 2000, excuse me. Okay. Um, and, uh, You've you've talked about how um, how crucial it has been to have kind of a, a strong support team around you, in terms of um, you know Zach Caldwell. I think you know you guys worked really clo- closely together, both in terms of your training, but also how diabetes plays in there. Um, doctors, for someone who's a, a non-diabetic athlete who's new to this whole process, what do you think the learning curve might look like, and and what kind of resources? Um, should they make sure that they have if they're interested in kind of using this technology? Well, the technology is basically just going to show them how their body reacts to what they're eating and to the, the exercise that they're putting in the, into them. There's no, you know, critical 
thing that's going to happen <laughs> by wearing this device and finding it out. Um, it would, it's really just going to be uh, satiating a curiosity and then using what you see to try to, you know, make your glycogen stores ideally topped off for working out um, and not seeing high blood sugars at night when you're trying to recover. Um, so basically there's just, there's no downside to it. It's just more information. Um, and if you're, and if you're open to it and you're not willing and you're not going to obsess over it, like Gus seems to not be interested in obsessing, um, then I think that there's no downside. Now, if you're teetering on the edge of an eating disorder, you might want to second guess whether you want to know more about your glycogen status, um, because, it can be a slippery slope, especially if you've got an obsessive compulsive personality or, and you're, like I said, you're almost anorexic, then I wouldn't use it. Right. Do you think the benefit um, has anything to do with the, the type of training or the duration of events that athletes are doing? Um, I think that the, you know, the continuous glucose monitor I would be very, is uh, very useful for me in the in the um the iron man distance races you know being out there for nine hours in an event um in that in that instance the 15 minute lag time um doesn't matter nearly so much as it does in say a 15 kilometer race or a 30 kilometer ski race um like i wouldn't i can i can monitor my blood sugar actually using a watch in real in real time i know it's 15 minutes behind because of the subcutaneous fat um but in the long races it's very useful in a 15k i wouldn't even wear that monitoring device because um i one i wouldn't want to take the even the time to glance at it and two it's 15 minutes behind and the race is only 30 minutes long right um the last question for you i have for you is um as somebody who's who's living with and managing type 1 diabetes, when you see resources being put towards something like this for glucose monitoring for athletes, um, and frankly, it's, it's going to be, I think, sort of uh, cost prohibitive for a lot of athletes, um, do you feel that this in any way draws away from support for people with actual clinical diabetes and kind of research and support there? Or is it a situation maybe where in- increased data from something like um, – super sapiens and sort of the data that they're collecting from athletes uh, would support athletes with diabetes who are trying to troubleshoot blood sugar management? Well, from a cost standpoint, I think the more people using continuous glucose monitoring, the better because then there's more people using it and you can drive the price down. Um, You know, um, as right now, there's really, there's really only a few companies doing it. Um, and they've been marketing to primarily the type one diabetic community. And then they've branched out to the type two, um, community as uh, later. And I think going to athletes, um, it makes sense. Um, it remains to be seen how valuable of a tool it will be. Um, I would love myself i would love to see for example gus schumacher's numbers to compare to my own um you know like for the longest time 
I thought that 120 was about the highest that a blood sugar would go. And the little did I know that, you know, the anaerobic response would, would, would raise somebody's blood sugar into the 140s or even 160s that didn't have diabetes. And that totally changed the way I was thinking. So I'm very curious. Um, and, you know, I've been wearing one for, um, God, it's been 11 years now. Um, so I think I don't really see a downside to it. Any other thoughts on this topic? Um, nothing's jumping into my mind. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, I'm really interested in the science of it all and it seems, seems interesting and, um, it's, it's great to have your perspective. So thank you. Find more on Chris and his legacy as an American distance skier on fasterskier.com. Thanks for listening.